Hello, everyone, and welcome to Professor Jamerson's podcast. This is season three, episode one for introductory African-American studies, analyzing the movie Moonlight. I hope everyone is doing well and staying safe. Welcome to the first African-American studies specific podcast in our COVID affected semester. I'm starting off all of my podcasts for my classes from here for the rest of the semester with an update on the spread of the COVID pandemic last week for the COVID podcast. Numbers in the United States were at 55,000 total cases with 800 deaths. Yesterday when I did a podcast for my sociological theory course, numbers in the United States were 189,000 total cases and 4,000 deaths today. For this podcast in the United States, there are 216,000 total cases and 5,000 deaths. First, I'd like to thank all of the medical workers on the front lines of this pandemic, all the logistical workers making sure that we are getting food, that supply lines are still running, and everyone who has an essential job that requires them to be out in public right now. Thank you if you are not one of these people for staying home. This is the best thing we could be doing right now. I want to pause for a second and have a moment of silence for all the lives that we have lost so far. Thank you. Thank you. And uh, just a note, um, there are stories starting to come out about how the African-American community is going to be disproportionately affected by this pandemic than whites in the United States. One of the first Uh, pieces of evidence that I saw about this is the criteria associated with who could get tests early on in this pandemic in the United States and who could not. Because there were such limited tests for the public, there were criteria as to who could get them. And these typically included traveling outside of the borders of the United States to affected regions. And these kinds of travelers are most likely to be richer and whiter. And so there was already a racial bias built into the criteria to get tested. And so it may be that the African-American community um, will be affected by this in a disproportionate way than the white community in the United States. I apologize for that tangent, but I really did want to kind of bring that up. I just have started to see these stories about how African-Americans will be affected by this just starting to show up on my radar. Uh, I want to move now to the film Moonlight. Um, We had a chance to watch the first act of this film in class together. Um, And once again, this movie is basically a coming of age story of a young queer black man in um, a depressed area of Miami that unfolds over three acts. First, we have the act titled Little, and this is when he is presumably in elementary school perhaps getting closer to middle school. The second act is when he is a teenager. And the third act is when he is a young adult, presumably of college age in his early 20s. Our introductory scene introduces Mahershala Ali's character, Juan, the drug dealer with a heart of gold. He he won an Academy Award for his performance in this film. 
And it really does kind of set the stage for the emotional depth of the relationships that we see created throughout the film. And this is really a credit to Barry Jenkins, the director of the film, which of course won the best picture at the Academy Awards a few years ago. We are introduced to just basically a regular day. It's a regular day in the cut, right? This is the area. And I think this is in the Miami area where, uh, drugs are being sold. It's in, in, in some people call these like open air drug markets, this sort of thing. Uh, it seems almost aside, but as Juan is talking to his employee, thank you for the job. Everything's going well. I've got this under control. We see these kids run by and it seems like they're playing, but we very soon realize that this is not the case. Uh, we are first introduced to little young Chiron. Um, he's being chased by some bullies in the neighborhood. They're calling him the F word. I'm not going to use that word in the same way that I will not use the N word. Um, it's just too derogatory, but this is what they're saying. They chase him into a crack house where there's crack pipes lying around and basically force him to stay in there until Juan comes and gets him. He won't talk. He's just introducing himself. His dad is out of the picture. Little doesn't speak a word until almost 10 minutes have gone by in the film. And, and just in his silence and in his reactions, we already have the picture of a young boy who has already experienced a tremendous amount of trauma in his life. And as we start to learn more about his world, we can understand why this is the case. We meet his mother, who is standoffish from the very beginning and completes a very, uh, a very fairly quick descent into drug addiction throughout the course of the film. But when we meet her, she's wearing a work uniform and it is definitely the uniform of a healthcare worker, which leads us to believe that maybe she's even a nurse or a nurse's aide or a caregiver or something like that. But which leads us to believe with the uniform and with her little badge card that she does have a decent job at this time. We move from meeting the mom and learning a little bit of his home life to a very interesting scene with these boys playing in in a field by some train tracks. Classical music is playing. I felt like the use of classical music throughout the film was a very interesting touch when layered over these scenes of African-American poverty and oppression. They are playing a game, and I think the boys in the game call it knock knockout, knockdown, or something like that. But I remember this game when I was younger. And the game is basically there's a ball or an object, and the ball is kind of passed around. Whoever picks up the ball has to run for it, and the rest of the group chases after the person who has the ball and tries to tackle them. We call this game, or I knew this game, please excuse me, I knew this game as Smear the Queer growing up. And this is a pretty common game that you would see played in schools um, and other places where kids are kind of around each other, but there's not a whole lot of structure. And this is always the term that I knew this game, but there's a different term used, but I think it's interesting, right? Thinking about heteronormativity in society that I knew this game from a different name. We already get the sense that Chiron Little does not feel comfortable at his house, so he ends up going back to Juan's house, and we lead to get to the first of two pivotal ocean scenes in the movie, and this is really a baptism of sorts. 
the the symbolism of Juan teaching Chiron to swim also symbolizes that Chiron is beginning to trust Juan with his feelings, with his emotions, with his self. And we really have the beginning of a, a paternal relationship, a tenuous one um, at best, but a paternal relationship being established nonetheless. This is when Juan tells Chiron, you know, there are black people everywhere, all over the world. And it's almost like that one mention of how great African civilization was in Selma. It's just kind of an aside, but it's really, really trying to get Chiron to expand his, his realization and his self-awareness of who he is as a black person. you got to decide for yourself who you're going to be. Don't let others make that decision. It could be a direct reference, for example, to this notion of a double consciousness or a rejection of the condition of double consciousness. I want to point out right here that there are zero white people in this movie at all. Uh, this is both... Uh, I think an intentional choice on the part of Barry Jenkins and also very realistic and reflective of housing conditions for most African-Americans in the United States who still live in very racially segregated conditions. And I would point you to Douglas Massey and uh, Massey and Denton are their last names. Their famous work from the mid 1990s called American Apartheid for more information about that. Throughout this first act, which really seems to be like the longest one and has the most sort of pivotal moments for Chiron's character, for example, the the penis comparing in the bathroom at school, learning these these first few things about sexuality, these first few these first few experiences of sexuality. He comes home one day and finds the TV gone, a symbol that his mother is sinking further and further into a drug addiction. Uh, this drug addiction, of course, is fueled by Juan, who is, he's a nice guy, but he's still a drug dealer who is selling her the drugs. Juan confronts Chiron's mother. Uh, and they have a fight out in the street. She smokes crack in his face. Uh, she, this is when you find out that she very much suspects his homosexuality and very much resents it as well. This leads to the conversation, of course. Right, she goes home and screams at him. Then he leaves and goes over to Juan's house, where he asked Juan, "What is an F word?" And you know, Juan is sitting there, and Teresa is sitting there, and he's like, "This is a, it's a, it's a bad word for for calling gay people." And this leads to this conversation, another pivotal point. Um, it really is sort of the end of Little's innocence when he starts asking about these things, and it's like you'll know when you know. And then he confronts Juan about his role in his home life. She's, and he's like, my mom does drugs, right? And he's like, yeah. And he's like, and you sell drugs, right? And Juan's like, yeah. And this is a very devastating moment for Juan. And, and, uh, and Little gets up and leaves. And this is the end of that first chapter. It's really, uh, Little does a lot of growing up here in these moments, really thinking about himself and the wider world around him. The next act is titled Chiron. This is, of course, the teenage act. He has been bullied for years and years. He runs into his friend Kevin, who also was his friend earlier and gave him advice about sticking up for himself, 
Kevin is bragging about getting caught having sex at school. Very much uh, a male braggadocio, uh, exaggerated um, heterosexuality being seen here. Uh, mom's drug abuse is getting worse. Juan is dead. Excuse me, Chiron ends up getting beat up quite, uh, or he's being intimidated and intimidated. And finally, Chiron, his mom, kicks him out of the house. He ends up at the beach. And, and finally, here's Kevin. Once again, another pivotal scene at the beach and, and perhaps another baptism of sorts. This is both an emotional and a sexual coming out for, I believe, both Kevin and Chiron as they confide in each other about their worries and their fears over a blunt and then end up making out and engaging. Uh, I think they got to about third base there on the beach that night. Of course, this moment is then eroded by Kevin's betrayal. He is basically ordered to start a fight with Chiron very soon after that by this bully figure which leads to an actual beatdown, right? He gets he gets the crap beaten out of him after after Kevin throws the initial couple of blows. He is uh, encouraged to tell on the people that told on him. He's like, you have. He's talking to that woman. He's like, you have no idea what it's like, and he starts crying. And he doesn't do it. What does he do? He marches into school the next day, marches right into his classroom, picks up a chair, and attacks the bully who started all of it. This leads to his arrest. We could think of the school to prison pipeline here when it comes to African-American youth. He ends up leaving Miami and going to Atlanta after getting out of juvie. This leads us to the third act in the film, which is called Black. And I really think that the symbolism there is very important. By this point, he has learned to completely closet himself and he has shielded himself. He has armored himself right around this 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 veneer of a hypersexual a hyper heterosexual black gangster persona right he shields his teeth with grills he shields his fragile inner inner self with with a ripped physique and and lots of muscles and a nice car and aggressive hip hop music no more classical music in the film from here on out <laughs> He is trapping. He is working the streets. He's doing the same thing. He's wearing the same damn uh, headrest as Juan was doing, head wrap as Juan was doing at the beginning of the film. And this is really, even though he is kind of repeating this cycle and characters are upset with him, his mother is upset with him, Kevin becomes upset with him, even though he is repeating this cycle and it might seem to be a tragic repeat of this vicious cycle of inner city poverty that affects African-Americans, this is still very much a chapter and act about redemption and about reconciliation and about hopefulness and optimism. He reconciles with his mom. He reunites with Kevin. And, and I thought this is quite, uh, quite well done. He is visibly nervous to reunite with Kevin. You know that he's been thinking about Kevin for a long time. He even has like a sexual dream about Kevin after he receives the phone call. And so he's visibly nervous to meet him. He's, he gets out of his car after driving from Atlanta to Miami. And one assumes that he drove straight there because he gets out of his car and puts on a shirt, kind of freshens up. And, and this is something you would do if you were going 
right out of your car to a meeting, you wouldn't wear perhaps your shirt the whole way because it would get kind of funky while you're driving. He messes his, with his hair, even though there isn't much hair there. He wants to look nice. He wants to present himself nice for this guy that he hasn't seen in years and years. And Kevin feeds him, which is the same thing Juan did to gain Chiron's trust earlier in the film. We go back to Kevin's from there. And the reason I played um, Roberta Flax, Killing Me Softly, with his song is because Kevin, the reason, the stated reason Kevin gives is, hey, you know, I heard this song. And then he plays the song and it's Hello Stranger, this like kind of old romantic song. And they're both like staring at each other, not quite sure what to expect, but knowing that they're in the right place. And and, and one must imagine that Chiron has been thinking about Kevin and his relationship for a very long time. And it turns out that he has been. He says, I haven't been, no other man has touched me since, since you have. And, and I haven't touched anyone. Right, that moment earlier in the film on the beach between those two is the only sex he's ever experienced in his life. And the movie doesn't end with sex. It ends with cuddling. It's not even the, the sexual gratification that Chiron is after. It's, it's the gratification. It's the, it's the, the welcome and open acceptance of who he is as a person and the fact that Kevin knows who he is as a person, this for Chiron is what's most important. This is the ultimate redemption for Chiron at the end of the film. And so it really ends in this powerful sort of emotional moment. And I hope you've been able to sort of appreciate that as I've been explaining it. I want to actually move now from a more detailed analysis of the film itself to the reading that we have by Kathy Cohen. Thank you, Corey, for providing that for us. So I will start talking about that one right now. So as I'm going over this reading, I really just, as I'm talking about, I want you to keep your mind on Chiron and his lived experiences. And, and this, this article is mostly centered on this notion of a radical queer politics. And it really starts from this problem of heteronormativity being the dominant sexuality in modern society. What is heteronormativity? There's a good definition of it here on page 440. By heteronormativity, I mean both those localized practices and those centralized institutions that legitimize and privilege heterosexuality and, heterosexual, and heterosexual relationships as fundamental and natural within society. Basically, heteronormativity is the presumed normalness or normality of heterosexuality in modern society. And this is very much Chiron's world, even an exaggerated heterotivity, heteronormativity, perhaps. The main problem Kathy Cohen is addressing here in this article is, is, is on this notion of queer politics as having as being invested with types of privilege and and is centered on those individuals, I'm quoting now, who consistently activate only one characteristic of their identity or a single perspective of consciousness to organize their politics, rejecting any recognition of the multiple and intersecting systems of power that largely dictate our life chances. And here she is talking about 
queer rights and queer activism, and we can really think about blackness in the same way. And so it's not enough to just think about race. When we talk about someone like Chiron, for example, it's not enough just to think about gay rights. When we talk about Chiron, for example, we need to think about the ways that race and class and gender and sexuality all act in many ways as intersecting vectors of social oppression. And this is when the author was like, we have an idea coming out of black feminism. This notion of intersectionality is a potential solution to this problem. Inserting intersectionality into queer politics becomes a potential solution. There's an overtly political argument here. You know, she's like, I think we really need to think about the left and the left is the best when we want to think about a, a radical queer politics. Um, this is fine, but but please don't equate leftism with the Democratic Party because the Dems are no angels when it comes to either gay rights or actions toward addressing racial inequality. Speaking of gay rights, there's a good quote here at the bottom of page 442 that I want you to be keep aware of. Uh, and this is about confronting systemic homophobia by Urvashi Vaid. Civil rights do not change the social order in dramatic ways. They change only the privileges of the group asserting those rights. And so the, the argument here is that we need to go beyond sort of changing the rules of society. We need to think about changing the hearts and minds of society toward a more inclusive and, and um, liberatory mentality. And it's not just the queer community that that uh, can sometimes have uh, blinders on when it comes to recognizing other forms of oppression in society. This also happens in the black community as well. The same adherence. Here's a quote on page 443. The same adherence to a heterosexual norm, heteronormativity, can be found in the writing of self-identified black left intellectuals such as Cornel West and, and Michael Eric Dyson. I would also say that this is also a characteristic of our textbook as well. It, it operates from a very heteronormative position and the assumption that heterosexuality is normal for African-Americans. And, and this, this article, of course, argues that this is not the case. On page 444, we have sort of an introductory description of what it means to be queer and what a queer identity is and, and what queers want as, uh, uh, as part of an activist agenda. I'm using the word queer here because it has been marshaled as a symbol of resistance to the heteronormative order, and it is used quite extensively throughout this article. Thus, what queers want, this is a direct quote, is to be part of the social, economic, and political restructuring of this society. Queers want to have queer experiences in politics taken as starting points rather than footnotes in the social theories and political agendas of the left. And I'm just wondering, like, how, how much does Chiron get to worry about stuff like this? Does Chiron get to experience any of this sort of activist mentality as a queer man? He almost has to be totally closeted for example, just to survive in his society. How do all of these play, how do all of these aspects play a role in suppressing or oppressing Chiron's sexuality? Is he in a position to fight 
for these acknowledgements. Another point to think about here on page 445, I find it very interesting that very uh, that that's um, some of the most radical queer activism has taken uh, what they call an anti-assimilationist uh, position as one of the, um, the, 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 the quotes here discusses uh, members of the Chicago-based group Queers United Against Straight-Acting Homosexuals, Quash State, just such a position in the article, Assimilation is Killing Us, Fight for a Queer United Front, uh, published in their newsletter, Why I Hated the March on Washington, Assimilation is Killing Us, We Are Falling into a Trap. Some of us adopt an apologetic stance stating, that's just the way I am, read, I'd be straight if I could. Others pattern their behavior in a way such as to mimic heterosexuality so as to minimize the glaring differences between us and them. No matter how much money you make, fucking your lover is still illegal in nearly half of the states. Getting a corporate job, a fierce car, and a condo does not protect you of dying of AIDS or getting your head bashed in by neo-Nazis. The myth of assimilation must be shattered. And in this anti-assimilationist stance, I can't help but think of anti-assimilationist stances coming out of African-American activism. For example, Du Bois and his anti-assimilationist stance, uh, Malcolm X and his anti-assimilationist stance, Marcus Garvey and his anti-assimilationist stance. And so I really am seeing quite a few parallels between different forms of queer activism and different forms of African-American activism. And finally, I'd like to draw your attention to a very important section in this article, starting on page 452, that's titled Heterosexuals on the Outside of Heteronormativity. And this is probably the most relevant and germane section in this article, specifically to African-American studies. I advise you to please, please read it carefully. So the, 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 the argument made here in this section is even straight blacks, homosexual, uh, excuse me, heterosexual blacks have had their sexuality, their heterosexual sexuality controlled as a major source of racial domination, especially during slavery. And there is a section here on page 453 that talks about this. For example, the prohibition of marriages between black women and black men were, uh, was a component of many of the slave codes, so slaves were not allowed to get married. Uh, M.G. Smith, in his article on the structure of slave economic systems, succinctly states, as property slaves were prohibited from forming legal relationships or marriages, which would interfere with and restrict their owner's property rights. And and finally, um, encouraging sex between slaves and not encouraging marriage becomes a way after the slave trade ends to, of course, produce more slaves. And so sexuality and sexual control becomes a major, major component of racial domination in the era of slavery. And also thinking about more a more current time, this notion of the welfare queen and the Moynihan report going back to 1965. This is still very much, however, Shyworm's world, this notion of a, an urban black underclass where jobs are hard to find, where poverty is widespread, where drug use is a serious issue. And and sexuality has also been weaponized against people living in these conditions, specifically in the form of the welfare queen. 
Let me look here. What do they have to say about this on page 455? The stigmatization and demonization of single mothers, teen mothers, and primarily poor women of color dependent on state assistance has had a long and suspicious presence in American intellectual and political history. And this is talking about the Moynihan Report in 1965, which describes the black family as a tangle of pathology. And this is what the Moynihan, what would the Moynihan Report say, for example, about Chiron's home life? No father and a mother addicted to drugs. This is why Chiron ends up like he ends up, according to arguments such as this. As Kathy Cohen says here, it is not the heterosexist behavior of these black men and women that is under fire, but rather the perceived non-normative sexual behavior and family structures of these individuals, whom many queer activists, without regard to the impact of race, class, or gender, would designate as part of the heterosexist establishment or those mighty straits that they hate. It is possible Thinking back to Chiron now, is it possible that these forms of oppression have led to higher levels of homophobia within the black community? This is not addressed in the article, but based on the film, being queer seems rather unacceptable in Chiron's world. Maybe an enforced and exaggerated heteronormativity in racially marginalized communities acts as a kind of, conversely, a divide and conquer strategy. These are all things to think about for your analysis in the film. Please excuse me, I'm running out of time. I'm going to include a lengthy class announcement to go along with this podcast. I do hope you all are taking care of yourselves. You will hear from me next week, probably around this time. Uh, I think we're moving on to uh, regularly scheduled class material next week. I will keep you posted. Take care of yourselves. Uh, I will talk to you next week. Bye-bye.